We're going to look now into chapter 19 of the book of Revelation because of time constraints. I won't go into much of a reiteration of what we've talked about so far as we've spent seven or eight hours already looking into the book of Revelation. Suffice it to say that we have noticed the Apostle John, he keeps building up to a climax, backing off from the climax, then starting again, building up to a climax, backing off again, and then building up to a climax. You remember he did that with the seals, then he did that with the trumpets, and then he did that with the bowls. And the climax that he keeps building up to is the great cataclysmic end of the world as we know it when God intervenes and brings judgment and then creates after that something entirely new. What we come to now is a more detailed look into that grand climactic end, that time when God terminates this world as we know it. And with that in mind, let me read to you from verse 11 of chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, And there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, if you have been spending time in the book of Revelation, you will remember that in the letters to the seven churches recorded in chapters 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus, who dictates the letters, is variously described. Now, if you look at this description of the one on the white horse, you will notice that much of that which describes Jesus in those letters is now consolidated here. And so it is obvious that the figure on the white horse is Jesus himself. And he is now leading the armies of heaven who are following him. And he is coming in order that he might rule the nations with an iron scepter. And in addition to that, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And what that means is he is coming to finally and irrevocably establish his eternal kingdom. And at the same time, he is going to wreak judgment on the enemies of God. Now, this event that is being talked about in this particular place is what we call the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is his triumphant return. Now, you may remember that in chapter 16, verse 15, we had a little interlude interjected, as was normative, between the sixth and the seventh statement, or the sixth and the seventh vision. And then this little interlude, it said, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. And we pointed out 
that that was just a little hint about the fact that Jesus would return and to use his own terms, he would come like a thief in the night. In other words, he would come without preamble. He would come unexpectedly. And it is absolutely imperative that those who are his should be keenly anticipating his return and actively on the job at his return. Now we go into a little more detail of Christ's return. Just let me remind you, just in case you're not too sure what I'm talking about here, about the triumphant return of Christ. Let me remind you of what Jesus said to his disciples when he had that last wonderful evening with them in the upper room immediately prior to his crucifixion. You remember, he talked to them about a lot of things. And one of the things that he said was, now don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. He said, I'm going away, but don't let that bother you. The reason I'm going away, he said, among other things, is that I, in my father's house are many mansions, and I am going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. And then in addition to that, he said, and if I go away, I will come again. Now, that was a fundamental, foundational promise that Jesus made to his disciples. Men, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He is going to be active in your midst, but the day is coming when I will return. Now, about seven weeks later, Jesus ascended into heaven little less than seven weeks. And when he ascended into heaven, the disciples were gathered around him on the Mount of Olives, and suddenly he left. And they were standing looking up into heaven to see where he'd gone, what had happened, and the angels spoke to them. And you remember what they said? You men of Galilee, why are you spending time gazing up into heaven? Listen, this same Jesus, whom you have seen go into heaven, will return in the same manner. Now put those two things together. If I go away, I will come again. This same Jesus whom you've seen going to heaven will return as you have seen him go. Now, the church of Jesus Christ as a fundamental tenant of the faith has adhered to this glorious promise and what we call the glorious hope that earth's history is going to come to a great conclusion when God wills and when Christ returns. Christians have a specific view of history. It is that it is working relentlessly and inexorably towards the consummation of God's eternal purposes. And they will be brought to pass at the glorious triumphant return of the risen triumphant Lord Jesus. So, for instance, in the Apostles' Creed, we make many statements about the Lord Jesus. He ascended into heaven, and then what do we say? From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Don't be put up by the quick and the dead. When, when, when you Americans go to England, we notice that there are two kinds of American pedestrians in English traffic, the quick and the dead. But that's, that is not primarily what the creed means there. 
the, the living and the dead. He will come to judge the living and the dead is part of the Apostles' Creed. It is foundational to Christian theology. Now then, it's very interesting to notice that when Peter got around to writing his second epistle, he had to deal with some skeptics. And these skeptics were saying, where is this promised coming? Where, where, what, what, about, what, what about this coming you're always talking about? That Jesus is coming again. Where is he? We don't see him. In fact, we simply think that everything continues as it always has done. Isn't it interesting? It didn't take long, just a few decades, before people became highly skeptical about this fundamental truth of Christian doctrine, that Jesus would return. Well, if they were skeptical a few decades after Jesus promised to come, what is the general attitude two millennia later? And the answer is rank skepticism. Rank skepticism. But if we look into Scripture, and if we look as we are doing in these days at the book of Revelation, we better be very careful. Because what we're reading here is that God in his good time will bring his purposes to a conclusion and his son will return. Now, the passage that I read to you is highly descriptive in, in typical John's language. Dramatic language, colorful language, apocalyptic language. And we could spend a lot of time looking at the description of Jesus in this particular uh, passage. Let me just walk you through it rather quickly. You'll notice, first of all, that when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a previous occasion, he came very humbly on a donkey and was given a tumultuous welcome, but he cried through it all himself because he knew the superficiality of the response of the people of Jerusalem. And remember, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens, but you would not come to me. Well, now he's returning. And this time he will not return in tears, humbly on a donkey. Next time he comes as a triumphant warrior in charge of the armies of God to bring about the purposes of God. And the return of Christ must be seen in that light. It is a triumphant warrior who will return. And he will gather together God's people and he will bring final judgment on those who do not belong to him. He is called the one who is faithful and true. And he has proved himself to be faithful and true. I love the fact that at his baptism, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That was the Father speaking from heaven. Now, that was after 30 years lived in obscurity. And the Father had watched him in obscurity and found him utterly faithful and utterly true. 
But then on the Mount of Transfiguration, very close to the consummation of his three-year earthly public ministry, the voice from heaven again says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And as Jesus ended his 30 years of obscurity, the divine imprimatur was, he is faithful and true. And when he concluded his three years of public ministry, the same endorsement comes from heaven. And this one who will come to rule and to reign in righteousness has proven himself in obscurity and in public, in private and in public, to be utterly reliable, totally faithful, and without the slightest trace of hypocrisy. That's who's coming to judge. But then we read on. He has proved himself to be faithful and true. We also read that as we look into the description of him, that he is irresistible and indisputably in control. He has many crowns, you'll notice, and his eyes are like blazing fire. His eyes are like blazing fire. I used to work for a senior colleague before we ever came to Elmbrook. He had the brightest, most piercing blue eyes that I've ever seen. And he had a rather nasty habit of never blinking. Have you ever met those people who never blink? And they've got these piercing blue eyes and you you talk to him and you just say, oh, please blink. Or please just look away or something because I have that nasty feeling that your eyes are boring right down into the inner recesses of my skull and my heart and you know all about my motivations and and, and I'm standing naked before you. You ever had that feeling? That's how Jesus is. His eyes are like blazing fire. He doesn't miss a trick. I was talking to the group of men. I was telling them about how Jesus does not need anybody to tell him what's in a human being. And that's the picture of his eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many, many crowns. Not just one crown, the symbol of majesty. Many, many symbols of majesty. For he is super, ultra king of kings. There is no area in which his authority is not final. That's who's coming again. But then we read on that his name is hidden. It says he has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. That's interesting. He has a name written on him that no one except him knows. And the significance of that is probably twofold. It was believed in those days that if you knew a person's name, you could have magical control over them. But Jesus is the one whose name no one really knows, and that's just another way of saying there is no power that can exercise control over him. But another meaning could be that because his name is hidden from us, but he knows it, There is so much more to Jesus than we have ever, ever imagined. And that we can go on delving into the revelation of him and never exhaust what there is to know of him. 
Then we, we read he is dressed in a robe, and this robe is dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. You remember John's Gospel begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God himself. And you remember that both the Greeks and the Hebrews had a particular reverence for the idea of the Word. The Greeks had the thought of there being a rational principle behind all creation that was called the logos, which is Greek for word. And the Hebrews believed that there was innate, intrinsic power in the word of God. For the Hebrews said, by faith we believe that the heavens were created by the word of God. So we're thinking in terms of the ultimate rational principle behind the creation and the power that brought it into being. This is the one who will return incredibly with garments dipped in blood. Why? Because the word of God became also the lamb of God. For the word became flesh. And the one who will come to judge has earned the right to judge because he accepted the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world and went down into death and was raised again triumphant. This is the one who will return. Out of his mouth comes a sword, and the sword is the word of God. It is all about truth that is irresistible and irrefutable. And he, with an irresistible, irrefutable commitment to truth, will rule the nations in truth and righteousness. And he will reign as king of kings and lord of lords. There's a very quick picture of the Jesus who one day will return. His first coming was in total obscurity as a baby, born to a young girl, cradled in a manger in a borrowed stable. And we celebrate this at Christmas time. We must always celebrate the second advent whenever we think of the first advent because if we don't we'll get a totally false picture we sometimes talk about the christ child i think we like to talk about the christ child because we can nurse a child we can get a child to do what we want it to do and that's exactly the kind of jesus that many people want but the christ who will return <laughs> you won't be nursing him you won't be messing with him. You won't be getting him to do what you want him to do. For you will find that he is king of kings and lord of lords. The word of God with garments dipped in blood riding on a white horse. Apocalyptic language. But as is the case with apocalyptic language, full of basic truth. Now, You'll notice that this King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to come, and verse 17 tells us what he'll do. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. 
kings, generals, mighty men, free, slave, small, and great, just about covers everybody, and that's the point. And the graphic language here about the birds eating the flesh of those things is a picture of the aftermath of battle, where the corpses lie and the birds feed on them. This is all about a devastating victory over the enemies of God. It is called the Great Supper of God. It's rather interesting that in chapter 19, we have just heard an invitation extended to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's no coincidence that these two are set in contrast to each other. There will be a wedding supper of the Lamb for all those who are part of the bride of Christ. You know what that is, don't you? The bride of Christ, according to Ephesians, is the church of Jesus Christ. And those who belong to Christ, who are the community of faith, are invited one day after the great cataclysmic event to share in this glorious event called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at the same time, there will be this great supper of God. And we're reminded again that the day of the Lord is all about judgment and blessing. It's all about judgment and blessing. And if we don't see both in balance, we're not getting the picture of what Scripture tells us about the return of Christ. What happens after this great victory? We read verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. You remember the beast, don't you? You remember the false prophet? You remember the beast was this secular power that was anti-God? And the false prophet was that which, in the context of the secular power, was propagating anti-truth, and the two together form anti-Christ, that this anti-Christian dynamic abroad in the world that we see on every hand will finally be taken and will be captured. And the two of them, it says, were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is ghastly stuff. But it is a picture of the final return of Christ and his ultimate triumphant victory. Have you ever wondered what's going to happen in the world? My, my mother had problems with me. I hate to admit this. We didn't always see eye to eye. And one of her favorite expressions was, as she looked disapprovingly upon me, I just don't know what the world's coming to. That was her favorite expression with regard to me. I just don't, I don't know how I raised a son like you, she used to say. I was doing my best to drive her nuts, but... That, that was her reaction. And I'd heard this, I don't know what the world's coming to once too often. So one day I said, well, mother, sit down and I'll tell you. And I explained eschatology to her. And she was not amused. <laughs> Seeing she led me to Christ, I suppose that was reasonable. Do you know what the world's coming to? You ever ask, what's the world coming to? 
I just told you. But I didn't tell you. I'm just telling you what the book of Revelation has been saying for 2,000 years. And this is all about the return of Christ. Well, now, what does the return of Christ, the promise of the return of Christ, do to a believer? Supposing you're a believer, you're hearing all this about the return of Christ, the triumphant return, who he is, what's going to happen, etc., etc. What does it do to you? Do you sit there like a bump on a log and say, huh, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, I believe he's coming. (laughs) You didn't get a message. You didn't get it. For you see, when we hear about the return of Christ, first of all, it is intended to generate within us a sense of exhilarating hope and confidence. For we know the end of the story and we know who wins. In addition to that, it engenders within us a great longing to be found faithful at his return. And in addition to that, because we recognize the awful consequences of Christ returning and people unprepared for it, it generates within us a great passion for mission. Faithfulness, holiness, confidence, exuberant hope, mission. These are the repercussions of people who embrace the promise that Christ will return. Is that what's happening to you? Is this what's going on in your heart as you delve into Revelation? Well, there's much more we could say about that, but we're going to exercise unusual discipline and move on because we now need to look into chapter 20. And this is the chapter you've all been waiting for. This is the chapter about the millennium. Now, some of you would recognize the millennium if you tripped over it in the corridor. But others of you spend a lot of time thinking about the millennium. What in the world is it all about? Well, let's read it, chapter 20. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan. <laughs> he gives him the whole works here. The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. So there's no confusion who he's talking about. And he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. That he must be. You remember, you remember when, right at the beginning of Revelation, John was invited through an open door in heaven so that he might be taught what must take place? You remember? That's what Revelation is about. God simply telling him what must take place. Well, here's one of the things that must take place. Incredibly, the serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, call him what you will. These are all descriptive of this malevolent force opposed to the purposes of God. There's a sense in which this one will be bound and locked in the abyss for a thousand years 
And at the end of the thousand years, God has determined that he must be set free for a short time. Now let's read on. Verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, a city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever." There you have it. So the beast and the false prophet have ended up in the lake of fire and now they're joined by their boss. The old serpent, Satan, the devil, the dragon. And that's the end of them. And God has triumphed. Well, There's a question now. In my Bible, chapter 20 comes after chapter 19. Check. Is that the same in your Bible? This has led some people to say that because chapter 19 finishes with the return of Christ, then chapter 20 logically follows on after the return of Christ. So what does that mean? It means that Christ returns before the millennium. Now, the technical term for Christ returning before the millennium is what? Pre-millennial. Pre-millennial. And many, many Christians believe that in in what we call the pre-millennial return of Christ. All right, now let me outline for you very, very quickly what a premillennialist believes. He assumes, she assumes, that chapter 20 follows chapter 19 chronologically. In other words, because the return of Christ comes at the end of chapter 19 and the millennium comes at the beginning of chapter 20, therefore the millennium follows the return of Christ. Secondly, The details of the millennium, which are very sparse indeed in chapter 20, and incidentally, it's the only place in the Bible where a thousand-year reign is mentioned. It's the only place you read about a millennium. The details of it for the premillennialists are found in the Old Testament, particularly the prophetic passages that have to do with the land of Israel and Jerusalem. And they see the prophetic passages about God's people returning to the land of Israel and particularly to the city of Jerusalem as being fulfilled in a literal thousand-year period after Christ has returned. Hence, a pre-millennial, literal 1,000-year period. They see this thousand-year period as the golden age centered on Jerusalem where Christ will reign with his saints because Satan is locked up in the abyss and he cannot deceive the nations. Now, the timeline for all this becomes a little complicated because if, if it is true, that Jesus will return before the millennium, that is, pre-millennial 
return, we've got to fit in a number of things in Scripture. And this appears to be the timeline. Number one, towards the end of all we've been reading about, of all the things that are terrible going on in the world, there will be a personification of that which is antichrist in a man of lawlessness, some kind of fearsome figure who will arise in a position of great strength. Around him will be a period of great tribulation. At the end of that great tribulation, Christ will return. At that time, he will rapture the saints. And they will also raise the Christian dead, and they will meet with the Lord and be taken to the judgment seat of Christ where they will receive their rewards, and having received their rewards, they will then return with Christ to Israel, and Christ will reign in Jerusalem, and the resurrected saints, with their rewards, will reign with Christ for a thousand years in the land of Israel, centered in Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot more to it than that. In addition to that, we may ask the question, why in the world would God want to do that? And the answer that is given by premillennialists is this, is twofold. Number one, because Christ was proclaimed to be the king of the Jews. They even put it on his cross. But he was never seen to be king of the Jews, and God wants the world to see Jesus as king of the Jews, reigning in that golden era of the premillennial return in Jerusalem. And the second reason is this. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, during the golden era of the thousand-year reign of Christ in Jerusalem in the Holy Land, the world will return to what it was before the fall. And God wants the world to see that. Now, that in a nutshell is the premillennial understanding of the millennium. All right? Now, there are other views. There, there, there's a premillennial position. There is the postmillennial position. There is the amillennial position. The postmillennial position, well, if you understand premillennial, that Christ will return before the millennium, postmillennial means Christ will return after the millennium, okay? And there are very few post-millennialists left now because the idea of the post-millennialist is this world's getting better and better and better. It'll keep on getting better and better and better until we'll bring in the millennium ourselves and then Jesus will come. Well, that was very popular before the two world wars and then it kind of fell on hard times for obvious reasons. So we won't spend any time on post-millennial. A-millennial. The Greek letter A before a word is a negative so a millennial means literally not a literal millennium. Not a literal millennium. Well, actually, it means not a millennium. People who are a millennialist object to that title, and they prefer to call it <laughs> realized millennial position. What they mean by that is basically that the millennium is not something that is going to happen after Christ returns, after a rapture and all those other things, and be literally taking place on earth. But in actual fact, the millennium is a period that the church is enjoying now. 
You remember that Jesus said at the beginning of his public ministry, before you do anything, you've got to bind the strong man. And if you can bind the strong man, then you can raid his house. And Amillennius would say, now Jesus is talking about the devil there. And he is saying, as he came in and he showed that he had power over the devil, that the day and the era in which the devil was going to be bound so that he couldn't deceive the nations had actually arrived. And it arrived when Jesus came and Jesus continues by his power to thwart the purposes of the evil one in one specific way. He can't deceive the nations anymore for you can go around the world and you will find that the gospel of Christ is taking the scales of people's eyes banishing their darkness, opening their hearts to the truth, and they are beginning to discover the rule and reign of Christ in their lives. Now, the amillennialist would look at the book of Revelation, and instead of saying it follows on chronologically, that is, the, uh, chapter 20 comes after chapter 19, therefore the millennium happens after the return of Christ, the amillennialist would say no. If you look at the way Revelation is crafted, it seems to keep reverting and starting again. And that is the way that we have been interpreting a revelation. Remember, we've gone through the seals, and then we went through the trumpets, and then we went back, and we went through the bowls, and they all kept coming back to the same place, so that the amillennialist does not see this as a chronological thing. The amillennialist does not see a literal 1,000-year reign on earth, and there's a reason for that. It doesn't say anywhere in Revelation 20 that the 1,000-year reign will take place on earth. Secondly, they don't believe that it will be a literal 1,000 years for a very good reason, and that is we don't take any of the other numbers in Revelation literally. In addition to that, the thrones on which those who are the martyrs with Christ and reigning with Christ, if you read about the thrones in Revelation, they are always in heaven and they're not on earth. And so the amillennialist would say this, that what, what happens is this, that when Christ came and he bound the strong man and was able to raid his territory and stop him deceiving so that the gospel could go forth. That has been happening for 2,000 years and will continue. For 1,000 is an indefinite number of completeness. In other words, it is going to be the whole thing. It is 100 cubed, a picture of completeness, but an undefined number. That this period of time, where the strong man will be bound, that the gospel will go forth, and Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all nations, then the end will come. That during this period, those martyrs, and the people of Revelation are very worried about the martyrs, the martyrs are in heaven reigning with Christ. But at the end of the thousand years, the devil must be released. What that suggests is what we've already seen, that at the end of the age, evil is going to become more evil. Good is going to become more good. There's going to be a greater polarization, and then Christ will return. 
And the fundamental difference between the amillennial position and the premillennial position is that the premillennialist sees the return of Christ in two separate episodes. The amillennialist sees the return of Christ in one great cataclysmic event. And you must decide whether you are an amillennialist, a premillennialist, or a postmillennialist, unless you settle for being a pan-millennialist. And a pan-millennialist says, I guess it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> well, that's hardly the noble moment on which to end. But I was going to do that, but I, I, I kind of blew it, didn't I? So let me just introduce you now to something that is far from a laughing matter. Ten minutes. Give, give me five or ten minutes. Can I, can I take five or ten minutes? All right. Look in verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment, on which the Father and the King of Kings sit in holy, righteous, just judgment. An utterly awe-inspiring, terrifying thought. How terrifying? Heaven and earth flee from his presence. Heaven and earth flee from the presence of God. And the dead, small and great, that's everybody, absolutely everybody, will congregate at the great white throne. And at the great white throne, the books will be opened. And the books have a detailed, meticulous record of what you and I did with our lives. And what we did with our lives will be evaluated by the holy, righteous, just God. Did you know that? Did you know that one day you will stand before God and be judged on the basis of the life you've lived? No exceptions. No omissions, no excuses, no hiring the best lawyer that money can buy to get you off. No miscarriage of justice. Just the awesome brilliance and holiness and righteousness of God like a spotlight evaluating your life and mine. This is the return of Christ in judgment and blessing. Now the scriptures tell us there is none righteous. 
No, not one. That wasn't me. That's what the Bible says. There is unrighteous, and then almost assuming somebody goes, I just, no, no. Not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and are coming short of the glory of God. That's what it says. So we know what happens when we stand before the great white throne. And what we've done is evaluated. We've come short of the glory of God. You say, you're going to leave us there? No. And another book is opened. The book of life. And there's a record in the book of life of all those who have received life, life eternal. And how does anybody receive life eternal? Well, if the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is life eternal. And so on the basis of what I've done, I'm judged and condemned. On the basis of grace, if I have received that which I could never earn and never deserve, which is the gift of forgiveness and the gift of life, my name is written in the book of life. Nothing to do with me. Everything to do with him. Praise be his name. And those whose names are not written in the book of life, for whatever reason, they didn't think they needed forgiveness. They were flattering themselves they were good enough. They never thought God would judge them. They even had the audacity to ask, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? It never occurred to them to ask, how can a holy God ever have anybody in heaven? For whatever reason, people might decline the opportunity to have their names recorded in the book of life. Those whose names are not recorded in the book of life find their ultimate destiny with the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, which I guess is justice because they spent their time on earth with them. So why in the world would they want to spend eternity with God? And all God is doing is not sending people to hell is simply confirming the decisions they made themselves, which is a very equitable settlement. And the glory of God is seen in the return of Christ, whether it be in judgment on the unrepentant or in blessing on the redeemed. And the question I want you to go away pondering is this. Is my name in the book of life because I have repented of my sin 
and I've humbled myself before God. And I've thanked him for sending Jesus to die for me. And by faith, I receive what grace proffers, which is the gift of life eternal. The end. Let's pray. Here's a prayer for you, if you want to use it, if you're not sure. Lord, there's, there's so much that's so mysterious about this, but common sense tells me that this world can't go on indefinitely like this. Something's got to give. And I suppose I can just sort of hope it will get better or just assume that we'll think of something or just gamble that I'll come out all right in the end. Or I can think very seriously about the fact that if God created it, God is the one who terminated it. And if God put me here for a purpose, he's the one who will evaluate what I did. And if that's true, and he says, I didn't match up to his standards, then what it means is I better get around to humbling myself and doing what I should have done a long time ago. And that is, repent. Turn back to the Lord. Receive his grace and forgiveness. And begin to live in newness of life. And that's what I want to do, Lord. I ask you, please, to write my name in your book. In Jesus' name. Amen.